the First Christian Church of Chiefland brings you the good news. And now, Tom Show. Well, this morning, as we continue our series on the parables of Jesus, I'd like to preach a sermon I've entitled, The Positive and the Peril of Prayer. A man took his small son with him to town one day to run some errands. And when lunchtime arrived, the two of them went to a familiar diner for a sandwich, and the father sat down at one of the stools at the counter and lifted the boy up to the seat beside him. They ordered lunch, and when the waiter brought the food, the father said, Son, we'll just have a silent prayer. Well, Dad got through praying first and waited for the boy to finish his prayer, but he just sat with his head bowed for an unusually long time. And when finally uh, he looked up, his father asked him, What in the world were you praying about all that time? And with the innocence and honesty of a child, he replied, How do I know? It was a silent prayer. <laughs> when Robert Louis Stevenson was a boy, he once remarked to his mother, Mama... You can't be good without praying. She said, how do you know, Robert? He said, because I've tried. <laughs> and a little boy had been sent to his room because he, had, he was bad. And a short time later, he came out of his room and said to his mother, I've been thinking about what I did, and I said a prayer. And that's fine, she said. If you ask God to make you good, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me be good, the little boy replied. I asked him to help you put up with me. <laughs> Let me ask you, do you remember your first prayer? As a child learning to pray, I never remember having a class nor hearing a list of instructions about prayer, do you? I remember being told to say in Jesus' name, amen, but most of what I learned about praying as a child came from hearing the prayers of others. I guess the first prayer I ever remember was written on a little stool that I used to step up to to get to the sink. And it was... Uh, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And that was the first I even knew anything about prayer. What would you think if God took some prayers that others had prayed and laid them out before us with comments to show what he wanted and didn't want in a prayer? Would that be helpful? Well, it seems quite logical, doesn't it? Even the apostles asked Jesus in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. You think about it. It must have been important to the apostles, to Jesus, to learn to pray because they saw John taught his disciples how to pray and, and Jesus would go off to pray. So it's something they saw is important enough to learn how to do. In my time as a Christian, 38 years, I've never heard anyone say they pray too much. Quite the contrary. I've heard countless times godly Christian men and women, teachers, elders, deacons, and preachers say, I just don't pray enough. Or, I need to learn so much more about prayer. There was a time, and still is, when the National Prayer Clinic is in Grundy, Virginia, and men meet from all over the country to go to the National Prayer Clinic, and this tiny little town down there in the Panhandle of Virginia, the coal mines, every two, first uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of October, where they meet 
to Nashville. Maybe it's the second Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, October. Anyway, they meet, and it's supposed to be all about prayer. I've gone many times, and there's like 20 messages on prayer. And it's like, for the, all the years they've been doing it, which is 40-some years now, imagine the National Prayer Clinic. Imagine how many messages have been preached on prayer. And you might say, how can so much be preached about one subject? Obviously, prayer is important in a Christian's life, isn't it? And I've never once, in the number of years that I went, ever heard a repeated message on prayer. And it was always some different uh, message, different scripture, and so on and so forth. It's quite interesting if you want to do a study, study the prayers in the Bible and different people that prayed them and why they prayed the way they did. It's quite interesting. Today I want to look at just that prayer. In God's Word, when we hear some prayers with comments from God Himself to instruct us in our own prayer lives to help us pray. Now I know that Jesus also gave us a model prayer called the Lord's Prayer. And that's a wonderful example of how we ought to pray. And why would you understand, Jesus never meant that to be the prayer that we pray for all things. It was to be a model. It was instruction on how to pray. And when you start breaking it down, what Jesus was trying to teach in the model prayer about intercession and supplication and giving thanks and so on, praying repentance and so on, so that's what that model prayer is all about. So that we're not praying the exact same words Jesus prayed. We're praying in our words, but we're praying in the same way that Jesus gave them a model to pray. And that might be a sermon I preach at some point to show you the examples of prayer. We've studied that in Sunday school. But today, let's look at some instructions on prayer that Jesus gives us, as well as a critique of two prayers. And that's, one, that's our parable for today. In Luke 18, Jesus gives us two parables specifically about prayer. And these are probably the most powerful parables on prayer in the Bible, don't ask me to say that again. <laughs> in that we see two sides of prayer. The positive and the peril of prayer. Found in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. <clears throat> then Jesus spoke a parable to them. That men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect? who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we contemplate these two parables, this one and the one that we'll read here in a little bit, I pray we'll understand more about prayer, the positive of prayer, and the peril of prayer, and how, Lord, we need the positive in our life, and how we need to avoid the negative, the peril, because, Lord, prayer is so vital to our life. It's our communication route to you. 
gives us an opportunity to share, Lord, with you what's on our heart. Though you know all things, we know we're not telling you anything new, but it's so encouraging for us, so rewarding and such a, a wonderful blessing when we get to talk to you. We put our trust in you, our faith in you. So I pray we'll learn these wonderful lessons today about prayer from these parables. And you will help us, Lord, not to be those who be found on this earth that have no faith to pray. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first of the two sides of prayer in these parables is the positive of prayer. The positive prayer is this. It's persistence. That's the positive part of prayer. It's persistence. Jacob Reese said this, I look at a stone cutter hammering away at a rock a hundred times without so much as a crack showing in it. Yet, at the hundred and first blow, it splits in two. I know it was not the one blow that did it, but all those that had gone before. And this is about as direct as you can get. Look at that verse number one again. He spoke a parable to them saying that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. What does Jesus want them to do? Pray at all times and not lose heart. The NIV says not give up. The New American Standard says not lose heart. The King James says not to be faint. All meaning the same thing. It doesn't get weak and pass out on your prayer life. Keep it up. Have you ever felt like giving up on prayer? Really? Things just seem to weigh in on you and you feel like giving up. I'm here to tell you, you may not realize, but when things start to stress you out, when troubles seem to come in your life, the trials seem to be piling up, two things are going to happen. Hopefully the third don't. First, you're not going to pray as much because you're focusing on your troubles. Number two, you're not going to read as much because you're too focused on your troubles. Now, why am I pointing my finger at you? Because three fingers are pointing right back at me because that's exactly what happens when I go through these things. Preachers aren't any different. We know what to do, but it doesn't mean when the trials come, it doesn't affect our prayer life, that it doesn't affect our reading the Bible. The third, you stop coming to fellowship and worshiping with God's children. I hope it doesn't lead to that point. But I've seen many a people come to that point. Brother, we miss you the past three weeks. Yeah, I know, but I've been dealing with a lot of things. That's why you should be in church, because then we bear one another's burdens. We'll help you pray. We'll help be there for you. Brother, sister. Satan, that's what Satan wants you to do. He wants to cut off your communication with the Father. That's how it happens. Bible reading and prayer. God's communication to us and our communication to God. And every good military general knows the first thing you do in any battle, any war, is you cut off the enemy's communication. Boom! So they can't talk to each other. That's what Satan does to us. He wants to cut that off. But that's why Jesus said, don't give up in your prayer life. Look at this parable. There are two characters here. 
One's a judge. Now listen to me here. A judge has a lot of power and authority. When a judge comes into the room in his robes and walks to his seat, what is the command for all present? All rise. Why? Because here comes the judge. Now see, you had to be back in the 60s even to know that. A judge is a powerful person. When the Bible describes God in the final day, he's called what? The judge. He sits on the throne and judges. Many of the judges in the Bible were also rulers of the people. Now I'm here to tell you that a judge has power and influence. But look at this judge that Jesus describes. Is he a judge you'd want to face? This guy is a judge who has no respect for God or man. He could care less what happens to you. And since he doesn't fear God, he doesn't care about justice according to the truth. And since he has no respect for man, he doesn't care about what happens to those he rules over. And there's another character in this parable. It's this one widow. Now in those days, a widow had very little power or influence. God's word protected the widow and orphan because they were members of society that were the neediest. They were also the most vulnerable. This widow has an enemy and she needs protection or someone to, be, to avenge against her adversary. So what does she do? She goes to the judge and states her need. And what does the judge do? He does nothing at first. He won't even regard her. Just like, talk to the hand. I have nothing to do with you. You're a, a widow. What have you have done if you were that widow? She has nowhere else to go. She has no power to deal with her opponent. And the judge doesn't listen to her case. He keeps throwing it out of court. Well, in those days, the judge used to sit at a certain different stations for judging. So he might judge over here, and then he'd go over here and do some judging, and he'd go over this town and do some judging. You understand what's going on here? This lady follows him around. She won't leave. She just keeps coming back and stating her case, and he doesn't throw her out. But he doesn't help her. And with her need until finally he realizes that she's not going to give up. And what is his reason for helping this widow? Frankly, because she's becoming a real pain in the neck to him. She's here every morning with the same old thing. She's driving me crazy. Worrying me. Oh, okay, okay. I'll give you the protection. Guess what? That was his job anyway. Now I know what you're thinking. God is the unjust judge. Now I understand because that is what many people think about this parable. But it's not correct. At this point in the story, Jesus makes a turn in the parable. His listeners are probably all on the widow's side at this point. Jesus says, hear to what the unjust judge says. Now what about God? If an unjust judge will listen to a persistent widow's case... Do you don't think God will hear yours? Do you think he will bring about justice to those he has chosen who cry out to him day and night? Is God just dragging things out so you will get to give you will give up? Verse 8 is great. I love verse 8. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. In other words, what this parable is doing is comparing God to the unjust judge and how much justice there is in God. In the opposite. 
If the unjust judge gave in to this woman, what do you think our great God who's full of justice will do for us? He will answer us speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now I want to notice a few things first and then come back to this verse. Number one, first, why did this widow keep coming to the judge? He could get the job done and she couldn't. And she was persistent. She wasn't going to give up. She knew he was the one who could take care of her. And she didn't give up. She knew he was the only hope she had. And if it doesn't help her, there's no help for her. She has no hope. And second, why did this widow keep coming to the judge? It was his responsibility, as I said, to give her justice. He was appointed for the very purpose of seeing that people received what was fair and legal. And third, what is your view of God's ability to answer your need? Are you like the widow who sees God as your only hope? Will you be like her and persistently pursue his blessing? Something here that we can indeed learn from this widow She's persistent. She's persistent. And finally, the judge recognizes that. When how was it that I read that? Because the widow trusts me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming, she weary me. She's wearing me out. So what's the easiest thing to do if she's wearing me out? I'm going to give in. You see, the thing of if I ignore it long enough, it'll go away doesn't work for this woman. And it should never work for us when we're praying to God. Persistence. Now, I want you to understand, I'm going to throw a wrench in here. That doesn't mean you're going to receive everything you pray to God about in the way that you think it should be happening. But it doesn't mean that God's not going to answer your prayer. And the key is here, we can be persistent, but when we understand that God answered our prayer with a clear-cut no, then we need to accept that. Because just because we're persistent doesn't mean sometimes God might not say no. That's an answer to a prayer. Or wait a while. That's an answer to a prayer. Now I'm not going to go into great detail, but if you read the book of Daniel, you'll find that Daniel prayed three weeks, 21 days. He was praying the same prayer and couldn't understand why he hadn't yet received an answer to, from God. Only to finally receive the answer and realize because there are spiritual battles going on in the, in the invisible world, is, it, is the spiritual world that we can't see, where the angels are trying to deliver answers to our prayer and they're fighting with the demons. Now I know that's deep, but it's in the book of Daniel. See, when the Bible says God answers us speedily, it's God's Speedily, not our speedily. <laughs> it might not come just that quick. And that's where sometimes God teaches us patience. But don't give up. Now, back to verse 8 because I love verse 8. It's a pretty clear point. Jesus is comparing the way this widow appeals to this judge with the way we should appeal to God. But Jesus is saying that God will certainly grant us justice. He will do it in a flash. But then he asks this haunting question that people just don't understand. When the man, Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, what kind of faith? Many people think this means faith 
will be gone when Jesus returns. They'll be gone. That isn't what Jesus is saying here. We have to keep it in context. What's the context of the parable? Prayer. Will he find faith on the earth to pray and not lose heart? That's what that verse means. Will he still find people that are willing to pray and be persistent? Well, when Jesus comes back, will he find people who have stopped praying? Will there be anyone left who trusts in God and seeks his help? In other words, will there be anyone practicing persistent prayer, holding on to that hope of God's answers to their prayers? You see, we need to keep praying and never give up. We need to believe that God is able to hear our cry. And now if you're praying for something against God's will, as I said, or that will save somebody against their own will, you may be in for a long prayer session with a disappointing ending. As tough it as is, you know, we want our loved ones all to go to heaven, don't we? What's going to keep somebody out of heaven is this. It's their own will. Their own will. Now, if you're praying for somebody to be saved... Think of how you're praying for somebody to be saved. Because it still comes down. It's their will and they have to accept. So pray. Here's how I pray. I pray that the word of God will prick their heart. That there'll still be people that continue to share the, the love of God and the word of God with them. And at some point, their, their heart will open up to the word of God. But I don't pray that anybody will be, uh, that. oh Lord, save my brother Alan. It's Alan's choice. Pray that God will give me opportunity to continue to share the word of God with Alan and that his heart will be open. Because see, the Holy Spirit's going to convict Alan with the word of God. It's not going to be me. But God's not going to save anyone against their own will. It's that simple. So we have to be careful of that. And that's not to say, as I said, don't stop praying for them, but just pray a little differently. That their heart will be open to the word. I've heard Christians say this. I ask God once. And I don't want to be untrusting or lack faith. Or go on babbling like the pagans do with many words. So I won't ask him again. You ever heard that? Jesus taught about prayer in Matthew 6. When he said verses 7 and 8. When you are praying. Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. And some have taken this to mean that I shouldn't ask the same thing again and again. And this is not the point here at all. Jesus is referring to pagans who use incantations in praying, thinking that they're magic spells that one can recite over and over to conjure up a spell or appease the gods will work. And those are vain repetitions and meaningless words. And this has nothing to do with heartfelt requests that you might place before God's throne over and over. What do we see here in Luke 18 with Jesus? I only read two times, but in the Garden of Semite, he asked the same thing of God three times. Now if, and what God say to the answer to those three prayers? No. If Jesus couldn't get a prayer answered with one time, he asked the same thing three times, 
That wasn't vain repetition. And every time God said no. So we can see we can learn something from Jesus' prayer. Besides, we do pray for the same things over and over times, don't we? I know we ask God for his blessing on our leadership, our elderly, at home, families, children. They're not vain repetition. I ask the Lord for wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit every day. It's not vain repetition. I pray for myself and for my family and I pray for you. Persistently. And I'm told in the scriptures there's nothing wrong with that. So let us be a people of prayer who never give up. Keep asking, seeking, and keep knocking at the heaven's door. Pray, pray, pray. If Jesus comes back in your life, be a praying saint who asks in faith. And this widow knew her limitations and she knew who could help her. So we also need to recognize our limitations and pray to God who can help us. And with persistent faith and expectations that he will give us what we need, what we need. And this widow knew her cause was right. She went to the source that was supposed to support her. And even when it seemed her effort was in vain, she continued to do so. She stayed persistent and got the answer that she should have got in the first place. That's the positive part of prayer. That's the part I really want you to remember. But I don't want you to forget this part because I don't want you to fall into this. The peril of prayer. The peril of prayer. Golf great Arnold Palmer. Everybody know who Arnold Palmer was? He recalls a lesson from overconfidence. It was the final hole of the 1961 Masters Tournament. And I had a one-stroke lead, he said, and I had just hit a very satisfying tee shot. I felt I was in pretty good shape. And as I approached my ball, I saw an old friend standing at the edge of the gallery. He motioned me over, stuck out his hand, and said, Congratulations, Arnie. And I took his hand and I shook it. But as soon as I did, I knew I had lost my focus. And on my next two shots, I hit the ball into a sand trap, then put it over the edge of the green. I missed a putt and lost the Masters by one stroke. And you don't forget that mistake. You just learn from it and become determined that you will never do that again. He said that I have never done that again in 30 years. During the Battle of the Wilderness of the Civil War, Union General John Sedgwick was inspecting his troops and at one point he came to a parapet, which is a fortification over which he gazed out in the direction of the enemy. And his officer suggested that this was unwise. Perhaps he ought to duck while passing the parapet. And he said, nonsense. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And a moment later, Sedgwick fell to the ground, fatally wounded. He didn't even get to finish the sentence. Let's look at these two men. Jesus spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And two men went up to the temple, he said, to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. No, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector Standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went down to this house, his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Here we have a look at a, the prayer of two men. And there are two attitudes. And then Jesus gives us a parable with these two characters. But the lesson is introduced in verse 9. You see, religion can make a person feel pretty good about him or herself. Let's face it. When you know the will of God and you live by the guidance of the laws of God and you have life that is worthy of imitation and respect, it's a good life. It's honest. It's clean. It's church going. It's respectable. In fact, it can be downright comfortable. Being good as well, it's being good. Now, too bad there are so many people around who are just bad people. They just don't behave. Aren't you glad you and I aren't like them? I mean, look at us. We're, we're church people. We live like we, we're supposed to live, behave ourselves, right? We don't want to have to live next door to people who have nasty habits and sinful lives. We, we have a nice neighborhood. We nice, neat lawns, pretty flowers, proper jobs. Thank God we're not like those people in the slums down the inner city. Those people live like they're filled with immorality and drugs and godlessness. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? Have you thought lately about the traps religion gets you into if you aren't careful? You see, that's the difference between religion and Christianity. The Pharisee was a religious man. If you looked at his life, you'd be impressed with how dedicated he was. But you look at his attitude toward those who are struggling with sin, suddenly he sees the, you see the trap of religion. It's not pure and unrefined, undefiled religion that cares about the deity. In James 1.27 it says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here we see legalistic religion that cares about self. And does your religion make you look good? Or does it make God look good? You see, true Christianity is to make God look good, right? Not us. It's okay to be thankful that your life is not wrecked by sin, but not so much that you look down on those whose life is destroyed by it. Because at one time, that was us. It's okay to be thankful that you do what God tells you to do, but not so that you can compare yourself with others who don't and feel better than they are and proud of yourself. It's okay to recognize that there are people who are wicked and sinful, but not so that you can measure your nearness to God by it. Pride and prayer don't mix is what we get here in this parable. Like oil and water, gas and flame, water and electricity. The heart of God that Jesus shows us here is interesting. God looks with favor on the humble sinner who begs for mercy and turns away from the religious squeaky clean man who boasts in his goodness. Both prayed. One was a sinner and one had a life broken by sin, but he humbles himself before God begged for mercy and God justified him. The other, the religious leader, who had a life of legalistic righteousness, but he bragged on himself, and God rejected him. He's the holier-than-thou person. Maybe that's why Solomon, in his wisdom, wrote in Proverbs 16, 18-19, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly 
than to divide the spoil with the proud. And when I put myself in this picture, I have to ask, which one best represents me? The danger of being a good church-going, clean-cut, well-dressed, smooth-talking preacher is that I might fall into the same trap of self-righteousness and look down on a fellow sinner if I'm not careful. I'm not any different than any of you. I'm a sinner saved by grace, needing God's mercy and forgiveness. You see, God delivered us from such thinking like the Pharisee. So may we live justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God and think like the sinful tax collector. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. May we always see people with the compassion of Christ. And may we stand for holiness, but never haughtiness. May we pray in faithfulness and humility and not pride and foolishness. Remember good old Nebuchadnezzar? You don't recognize that name, do you? A lady was new to the church. She came to me one Sunday and she said, Brother Tom, I have a question. Can you tell me about this king, Nebuchadnezzar? Thought for a second. I said, You mean King Nebuchadnezzar? Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. I kind of like the way she did it. She also asked me about the, the prophet Malachi. I said, yeah, that's the Italian prophet. We also know him as Malachi. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was a Babylonian king in the days of Daniel, and he defiled God and was not humble, so God punished him with humiliation, casting him out of the kingdom. He was made to eat grass like an oxen. The dew was on his body. His hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like the bird's claws. Then when the appointed day passed, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to God and said these words, as written in Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And Nebuchadnezzar changed his whole life over the God of Daniel. One New Year's Day in the Tornado Roses Parade, a beautiful float suddenly sputtered and quit. It was out of gas. The whole parade was held up until someone could get a can of gas. And the amusing thing was this float represented the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> With its vast oil resources, its truck was out of gas. You know, often Christians neglect their spiritual maintenance and we can run out of gas. We stop being persistent in prayer. We become filled with pride because of who we are. And both cause our tank to run out of gas. You see, Jesus gives us a great example in those two parables about prayer. Where are you in these parables? Are you the widow? Are you the Pharisee? Or are you the tax collector? thing is we could be two out of the three, can't we? I sure hope we all like the widow and the tax collector and not the Pharisee. God gave us an incredible opportunity when Jesus went to the cross. He gave us the opportunity for salvation. And I know People have a lot of views about salvation. 
And I really don't find it hard when we just stick to God's plan, which is in the Bible. And there, I have it up there on a slide. There's a lot of people who want you to think that all you have to do is believe. Well, there's too many scriptures in the New Testament that teach otherwise. Acts 2.38 says there has something called repentance. So Peter said we had to repent and be baptized. The word baptized is immersion because that's what the Greek word means. So Peter said that. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. That baptism now saves us. We're told we need to believe and repent. We're told to believe and confess the name of Jesus. So see, when we start putting the whole puzzle together, we find out that our, we are to have faith to start with because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is to cause us to repent because what good repentance if we don't believe in it? Faith causes us to repent. Faith causes us to confess the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's what the uh, Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8. He made that confession. That's them when he and Philip went down into the water and Philip immersed him into Christ. So we know that faith leads to baptism. And then we can't forget that faith is to lead us to the continued faithfulness in our Lord. You see, I don't find it that difficult when we stick to the plan. And if there's someone here today that still has not followed that plan, the door is always open to accept the plan of salvation. And that's why we always sing a hymn of invitation every week. Today our hymn is, Have You Any Room for Jesus? That's a powerful question. Because it kind of goes with our sermon today. It also goes with God's plan of salvation.